This episode of The Minimalists is brought to you by nobody, because advertisements suck. This podcast has bad words. <laughs> Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus, and together we are The Minimalists. Today, we're going to talk about alternative living options, Ryan. (laughs) It sounds like we're opening up a center. It does, doesn't it? The Alternative Living <laughs> Options Center. I'm trying to think of the most like crazy living, you know, arrangement w- like you and I could do. If Mariah moved in with you and then Bex moved in with me, what, what? and we were roommates, <laughs> <laughs> that's not unappealing. <laughs> Actually, yeah, it is. But yeah, it is. well, because Mariah is in LA 100 percent of the time. Right. Right. You would never get any alone time. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, well I, so there's a bunch of different things we could talk about. By the way, we have Christopher Kelly here from Nourish Balance Thrive. Chris, thank you for being yes. here today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. Now there are reasons that you're here. We'll get into that. But at first, I wanted to have, do an episode sort of about communal living. But I thought maybe that wasn't all-encompassing enough because people had questions about throuples, about combined families, about long-term singlehood, about nomadic living, mm-hmm. and a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. And so I think what happens here, and the reason I found this topic to be so appealing, is we think that there's a way that we're supposed mm. to live. <laughs> and let me give you first a 30-second overview of Chris. I- I've known Chris. We've been friends for... I don't know, five years or yeah, so now. Years. And uh, I often say, Chris is one of the few people, he, he and I have some of the best podcasts that we never record. Mm. <laughs> That's right, on the phone. Yeah, we just have a phone call and um, we'll, we'll talk for an hour or something. And I'm like, man, I wish we would have recorded this. And now he's yeah. here and we can actually record it. Yeah. But Chris helped me out with a lot of health things early on when I was starting to figure out some of my, my health problems. How did you find testing. Chris when you were uh, looking for some help with your health stuff? Maybe through Ben Greenfield. I'm not okay. entirely right. sure. Okay. But th- that might have been it. Um, and and so when I stumbled across Chris and he helped me through a whole lot of, uh, I had mercury poisoning and a bunch of other stuff mm. that was going on. You had all the things, I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, C. diff, et cetera. Good and, and Chris really helped me navigate the, the beginning of that. Uh, NourishBalanceThrive.com. If you've yeah. got health issues, you want to talk about that. We're not talking about health stuff today, yeah. although we're talking about a component that directly affects our health. Mm. I think so. It might be the most important and hardest problem I've had to try and solve, you know? (laughs) Oh, yeah. So let's talk about the problem. In fact, uh, you wrote down here that you're a a zookeeper for obligatory gregarious homo sapiens. (laughs) 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 What does that mean? (laughs) I think this is a good segue into ancestral health, right? So what I meant by that was imagine you are a zookeeper and some new species of upright bipedal ape shows up at your zoo Uh and you've got to figure out how you're going to look after them right so what are you going to do you're going to keep them in separate enclosures Mm. are you going to put them all in together are you going to make them sign a contract saying that they'll never put their genitals near another ape (laughs) are you going to feed them subway and uh, pizza hut 
or are you going to feed the? I mean, what are you going to do? Like, how are you going to design that zoo? Right? Like, you have infinite degrees of freedom. Mm. It reminds me of this place, Ryan, in Ohio, where they used to have that chimp, where he would smoke and eat oh. like candy bars all the time. Yeah, that was so sad. And I wouldn't do that. Right. Right. Exactly. And this is what they did do. Look up the story of Guy the gorilla, was a gorilla that showed up at London Zoo, and in the beginning they didn't really know how to keep gorillas in captivity, and they allowed the the guests at the zoo to actually feed Guy. Mm. And eventually he died of cardiovascular disease and diabetes, just like humans do. Oh, yeah. wow. Right. But through that, they learned a lot about how to look after gorillas in captivity. And they don't do that anymore, right? And, mm. and you look at how they keep gorillas in captivity. It's amazing. We were at San Diego Zoo looking at their gorillas recently. It's absolutely incredible. The enclosure is so much thought has gone into that enclosure. And the diet, it's not exactly like the diet a gorilla would eat in the wild, but it's mm -hmm. really close, right? You can go to the local supermarket and reconstruct a diet that's really close to what the gorilla would eat in the wild. Mm. Now, my argument is that we should be doing the same as, mm. as humans, right? We've been on this planet millions of years, our ancestors uh, walking around under the same light dark cycle, uh, anatomically modern for probably 300,000 years. Mm. And then everything changed, you know, 10,000 years ago. And then in particular... Now, 10,000 years ago because of agriculture. Because of the birth of agriculture, yeah, that yeah. changed. Like, once we became sedentary, that, that changed everything. By sedentary, I mean, we stopped becoming hunter-gatherers that just wandered the savannah, hunting and gathering, yeah. and became sedentary. We settled down, we started growing, we domesticated fire, and then plants, and then animals. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that changed everything. But of course... Those things domesticated us, as yeah, you could argue Yuval that. Harari would say, right? You could argue that, couldn't you? That you know, did we domesticate fire, or, or did it domesticate us? Right? right. It's like an interesting question. But mm. I mean, when you look at the last even 10, 20 years, technology has changed us beyond recognition. Like artificial light at night is a good example. Social media is a really good example. Yeah. And it would seem that these changes are not great for our overall health. Mm. Yeah. And and. and it, they're not great in ways that we don't notice right away. Yeah. And especially I, what I've noticed, the younger we are, the the more, I won't say immune we are to these external stimuli, but the more resilient we seem to be. But over time, for whatever reason, and I'm sure you have some hypotheses around it, w these things affect us negatively. And, and you, in your practice at, at NourishBalanceThrive.com, you have lots of people who come to you because conventional medicine sort of broke down, wasn't able to find the answers for them. In fact, it wasn't even about finding solutions. They couldn't even identify what the problem is. Right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, I've heard you say that a lot of these problems that we deal with now, they're, they're, there isn't like, we get so caught up in silver bullet thinking. Mm -hmm. And what you like to do is sort of take a, a more holistic approach. And I think part of that holistic approach has to do with, with our living arrangements. And that's why I wanted to title this one, unusual living arrangements because it's unusual in the sense that society has sort of prescribed something to us. Mm -hmm. And I, by the way, I do want to dive deep into your own communal living. You, you, you have a communal living situation. We want to dive deep into that on the Maximal episode. But first, Chris, I want to talk about why you're here today mm. because, well, um, it feels like we've been prescribed this way of living. And what you're saying is that prescription, while it may work for some people, it's not natural. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm natural. Like, I'm kind of scared of that word, you know, like it conjures up thoughts of the naturalistic fallacy, you know. OK, uh, well, it's mm -hmm. not birthed from nature. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> it may not be optimal. OK. 
And personally, I didn't realize there were choices, you know, like I just conformed to the societal expectations. Mm -hmm. And then only once I had kids, like that's when the really hits the fan is when you have kids, you realize, oh, this doesn't actually work very well. You know, mm. two people at the nucleus and then however many dependents orbiting like charged particles, we call this the nuclear family. Mm. It, it doesn't work very well. Now, did it mm. work previous to kids and, and, and only the introduction of kids made it not work? Or was it the introduction of kids that made you say, huh, maybe the whole thing doesn't really work? Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. I think that the kids are the straw that broke the camel's back, right? It kind of sharpens it and you're like, oh, actually, this really doesn't work. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, so where did this all sort of where did this idea start that of the nuclear family? Well, I think it's quite modern. You know, there's a really nice piece in The Atlantic I read recently. I think it was like the 1950s, in the US at least. The nuclear family wasn't a thing before the 1950s. Hmm. And it was an idea, it was a boom time where it could possibly work, you know, where you had dad went off to work on his own and mum stayed home and looked after the kids. Hmm. And of course now it's not really possible in Silicon Valley. You know, if you want to buy a starter home in Mountain View, then probably both of the parents need to be working a full-time job at Apple or Facebook or Google or something mm, wow. in order to be able to pay the mortgage for, you know, a $2 million starter home. So I, I, oh. I think even now, wow. you know, that this can't not work. go together. We're from no. Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> right. $2 million, you're like the richest man in the county if you have a $2 million house. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, seriously, there are like $2 million starter homes for sure. Wow. That's unbelievable. And so it's like maybe this moment in time in the 1950s where the nuclear family was an option, it could work. Mm-hmm. But yeah. n- never ha- since. Are you arguing that it never works? It doesn't sound to me like that's it either. Because yeah. it, it seems to me that like that's the trap that we get caught up in. Whereas it's supposed to be one way, as yeah. opposed to yes, there is a, for lack of a better term, natural way in in which we uh, ev- we evolved to become humans, mm. uh, an evolutionary way of living. But of course we've we've changed, we've improved upon our lives, we have electricity, and we all think that's for the better. Even if we don't think it is, then none of us that I know are, are you know, completely doing without these things, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm wondering if um, I look at these, these, these living situations, these, these arrangements, it's not to say the nuclear family is bad or wrong or anything like that, it's not to say that the other way is even right or better. Mm. It's, it's to say what is appropriate for you. Mm. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's right. I mean, so what, how people make the nuclear family work is they po- purchase the additional social support that would have previously come from the community, right? So people hire you know, a wet nurse, a postpartum mm. doula, a therapist, a mm. mentor, a, a tutor, you know, all these different things yeah. that normally would have been part of your tribe. So now they're, you just they're hiring a community. Things. I would say so. I mean, don't you think? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I never thought of it that way. It's so true. Yeah. That's a great perspective. Yeah. Like they're hiring a daycare. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, even teachers as well. Yeah. I mean, certainly when they're young, you're not really teaching. You're just doing babysitting. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, but it has to go back before that as well, where we started to believe that, that, um, there was, you know, I I don't know if it's a puritanical sort of way of thinking, uh, but whatever it is, there is, uh, there's something here where we've been forced into believing we have to live a particular way. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, I don't want the reaction to that to be, well, no, that's wrong. Here's 
the right answer. Mm -hmm. I think what we're talking about here today is, hey, here are some other options, yeah. perhaps. So we're going to get into that. I want to dive deep into Chris's story as well, but I thought we would start with some questions from our audience. We have a question here from Gwen in Athens, Ohio. How should I go about combating roommates or friends of roommates who steal my material items, such as food or money or self-care? So Chris, let's, let's rephrase Gwen's question here. Basically say, how do I appropriately set boundaries with the people in my community or in my home or whatever to ensure those boundaries are not crossed. Mm. You want to prevent people from stealing, obviously, property damage, but also just tense living situations, right? Mm. Um, now, you live in a, can you talk a bit about your, maybe your communal situation? So we've experimented with a number of different configurations over the past year, ranging from like a time segmented type arrangement where for a few days a week we're living with another family so I've got two kids uh, one who's a girl who's seven and a boy who's three and we've spent time living under the same roof with another couple who have kids of similar ages mm -hmm. and how so many we, kids do they have uh, so we've lived with a, a number of different families but I think they've all had two kids now of about the same ages now what have you learned from living with these different families because you uh, Gwen's question here is you, you basically have introduced roommates what what yeah. we in, in our today's society would say roommates it's different from that but that's how you even have to classify it, it it's almost it's, it's, it's euphemistic right there was a time not too long ago when gay couples used to have to say they had roommates mm -hmm. as opposed to having uh, a partner or a husband or and and so now you are trying these sort of experiments uh, with other families living together um how did you why did you start doing this <laughs> i think the kids were actually the main driver um i did a podcast interview with peter gray who you may, might might know his uh, he's got a really great book called free to learn okay and peter talked about the common word is unschooling yes mm -hmm. i don't really like that term Peter doesn't like it either because it focuses on what you're not doing mm. versus what you are doing. Yeah. So perhaps a better description is non-coercive, self-directed learning, meaning you're trusting the kids to find the best learning opportunity on their own without you doing much of anything. Mm -hmm. And in order for that to work, you need older kids, right? I don't care how old your kid is, you need an older kid because the older kid is like the scaffolding that helps the younger kid up to the next level. Oh. So you're not doing the teaching, the older kids are doing the teaching. Mm. You know, so I've, I've seen this happen firsthand where you've got an older kid that can read and they're looking at words on a screen or a piece of paper and they're telling the younger kid what they say. So the older kid is actually teaching the younger kid, even though the older kid doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah, and, and in that teaching, well. he or she is also learning through the, I mean, you learn so much more by teaching than, than yeah. just about any other way exactly mm. and so the problem is like you can't do that with just two kids right like you need more kids than that and so the question then becomes well, where do you get more kids now we live in a very rural area where most of the houses are on very large lots mm -hmm. and so there are some kids around in the neighborhood but not enough and so we needed to do something to bring more kids in mm -hmm. and, and, and that's exactly what we've been able to do and it, it's been great well let's talk a bit, a bit more about that yeah. um when you say it's been great, it sounds like you've lived with several different families. Uh -huh. ex ex explain that. Yeah, so we've done a couple of different things. We've had people living in our house. We, so we live in quite a small house. It's about 1,200 square foot. 
And, uh, you know, that's not very much space when you've no. got two families living under the same roof. Yeah. We've yeah. also done other things like having people bring on a trailer. Like these, tra I don't know if you've seen them, but these travel trailers are tremendous value for money. You can get yeah. like a house that's nicer than our house <laughs> for, you know, $20,000 or something and you can move it. You can just roll it onto. So we're lucky that we live on quite a large property. Mm -hmm. We've had people bring on a trailer and use that as a sort of separate space. Uh, from the main house that can definitely get a little bit crazy at times mm. and and so how do you navigate these relationships because these different people have different desires different wants yeah. different preferences different hobbies uh different levels of tolerance and and different desires uh, how do you navigate all of that well i think you start by having similar value systems right so mm -hmm. ancestral health is super important to us mm -hmm. and it gives us some guiding principles that we operate by and like finding people that share those values. Like I could live with you, it'd be great because yeah. I know you eat the same food, you go to bed at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think we could, we share a lot of things in common. And so it's not that much work to try and close the gap, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I heard once uh, a lawyer told me that, that sometimes a case will go to mediation and the judge will just refuse to do anything. They won't try and close the gap because it's just too big. Like yeah. there's too much distance between the two sides mm -hmm. and they say, go away, just go sue yourself, mm. you know, go sue each other because this is not a gap I can close. And I think the same is true with like communal living. Like you need to find people that share your value system so that whenever conflict does arise, there's like not that much of a gap to close. And so, and that is indeed what we've been doing. So all of the people we've lived with have had very similar value systems. Mm. Ryan, it sounds like you, <coughs> obviously the, the thing that, um, the best way to deal with conflict within the house, to get back to, to Gwen's question here, is to screen the roommates beforehand, yeah. right? Right. I think back to relationships that I've had, whether friendship or int intimate relationships. Mm -hmm. Quite often, it's simply a screening problem because, as Chris said, like we don't have the same values. Of course, there's good with that greater gap means there's going to be greater tension between the two of us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when it comes to Gwen's question, I would, you know, ask her: Is there a way to close that gap with? with her roommates and with her roommates' friends, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, if it's not possible, I mean, she could certainly do things like, I don't know, when I had roommates, I would lock my door. Um, I didn't, it didn't get to the point where I had a, where I had to get like my own mini fridge because uh, that gap with the particular roommate, you know who I'm talking about. Oh yeah. Um, I will uh, not name him to not shame him <laughs> publicly. We'll save that for Patreon. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, if I couldn't move out and if I couldn't afford to have moved out, like it would have come to that situation where I would have had to spend like a couple hundred bucks to get my own mini fridge. Right. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, if the gap is too large, Gwen, she's got to move out. <laughs> it's really rough. It's yeah. very different from my situation. Like everyone yeah. we've lived with has been tremendously respectful, like overly cautious, if right. anything. You know what it's like when you move in with a partner and, it, and it, it's kind of intimidating right like you're moving yeah. into their space mm -hmm. and you tread really lightly and mm -hmm. you're just very respectful yeah. that's more similar to my situation yeah. versus living in college with a bunch of arsehole roommates that are like fine about taking your food and yeah. all, like that's a very different situation i think totally. but even then you have you have conflict right and, and so there'll be times where maybe you don't agree on a parenting thing yeah. and, and, and how does that work out uh that actually ended one uh one yeah you're right like here we go now yeah. we're getting into the drama <laughs> the juicy stuff yeah i thought so i don't have a parenting style 
Um, that's actually Peter Gray talked about that on my podcast as well. Mm-hmm. Like hunter gatherers don't do parenting and they don't do teaching either. Mm. And uh, you know, I've read some really good books on this. Alison Gopnik, The Carpenter and the Gardener, is a, a really good one. And I love that metaphor. It's like so relevant for dealing with complex systems. You know, where in carpentry you measure twice and you cut once, and it's mm-hmm. like building a dining room table, and it's very obvious when the job is done, and mm-hmm. you know, you test to see if it wobbles and all this stuff, and then maybe you make some you know, slight refinements and in the end you've got this perfectly crafted piece of furniture. Whereas in gardening, it's mostly about keeping the weeds out and, mm. and just creating a, of an environment for, mm. the, for the plants to flourish. And you never really know what you're going to get, you know? I mean, of course you know what seeds you put in the ground, but you don't really know what's going to grow. Right. And so what Alison Gopnik is arguing is that parenting is more like gardening and less like carpentry. Uh. Mm. But a lot of people, they treat it like carpentry. And, uh-huh. and that, in the beginning, I thought, I don't care, you know? It's fine if, like, if you want to do helicopter parenting, go ahead and helicopter. But and you know, I, I don't have a style, so I should be compatible with any style. But you're right. It like once they start helicoptering your kids, mm-hmm. it's like, oh shit! Like I can't oh, handle this. And so that actually yeah. did end one relationship. So oh, give me Lord. examples of of helicoptering. What, what does that look like in in the real world? Uh, I mean, it looks exactly what it sounds like. It, <laughs> it's you 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 like you're literally hovering over the child, mm-hmm. micromanaging their every move. And the way it would, like, I know it was happening, is, even if I'm not paying attention, is like I would hear the kid's name over and over again, like over and over again. You're like, wait, why is, why is the person using the kid's name over and over again? Mm-hmm. It's because they're constantly trying to direct them towards control. the next. It's control, yeah. yeah it's overly yeah. controlling. Now, mm-hmm. now what, what about that control is so appealing to us? I don't know. It's like I think one thing I think is going on in Silicon Valley is people are really struggling with purpose. You know, they do, mm. you know, like there's this kind of standing joke that the, the brightest minds in the world are all working in Silicon Valley, getting people to click on stuff, right? right. Like, yeah. <laughs> all oh, these wow. people with PhDs and you know, stuff like just getting people to click on stuff. Mm. And, and it's, it's not, it, it's not really scratching people's itch. You know, it's not like a, a great purpose. And mm-hmm. I think it's a really common thing for people to either quit their job or, um, you know, this is what they do as a hobby. Like they go all in on parenting, you know, like, yes. <laughs> it becomes a new obsession. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I think a lot of the helicopter parenting too, probably spawns from good intentions, you know, like maybe oh, yeah. you, you're just trying to protect your kid from not getting hurt. Um, and there is a, there's a balance there. Right. But yeah, if you're constantly hovering over them, you're not allowing them to flourish themselves. Yeah, and exactly. Themselves. Exactly. Good intentions and bad ideas. Jonathan mm-hmm. Haidt's book, the coddling of the American mind explains mm-hmm. the whole thing very mm-hmm. well, I think. Yeah, and I think if we, we back up and, and re- remove ourselves from even the parenting situation, the same thing can happen with roommates or, or significant others, spouses, whatever. Mm. We can become helicopter partners. <laughs> we can become you know, helicopter roommates, and, and it quickly becomes an untenable situation. And so it's fascinating to me when we're talking about communal living, Really what you're talking about isn't a traditional commune necessarily, mm. but it's maybe an iteration of that. What do you mean by commune? Well, what, what, do you, what, what, Im- what images does that conjure when I say commune? Uh, it conjures up images, wild, wild country. That was such, I, yeah. I lied, I said I don't watch TV. We yeah. did watch that on Netflix, <laughs> it was really good. I really enjoyed that. So yeah, I think of gurus, uh-huh. like it scares yeah. the hell out of me. You know, like yeah. somebody, a boss, like, no. But right. it sounds to me like often those intentions of, cause here's the thing, we, we hear about wild, wild country or we hear about Nexium or, or whatever, these, these cults, right? Mm. And there are so many that you don't hear about because they're actually just communes that are working fine and there isn't some sex crazed leader who is making the news. It just happens to be that 
they're fine. We hear about the salacious stuff, right? Mm. And so we hear about when people are drinking Kool-Aid and killing themselves and or, or joining some sort of cult that castrates each other, whatever it is. That stuff makes the news. Mm-hmm. You know what doesn't make the news? Four families decide to live together happily. Right. Exactly. Lived happily ever <laughs> after. It's not a great news story, is it? No. And so, um, do, I don't know, do you see this evolving over time as you get acclimated with different families or whatever? Do you see a, a larger group forming out of this potentially? Well, that's an interesting question, is it? How much is enough mm. is, uh, is a very interesting question. Yeah, I, we've yet to figure out what the ideal number is. So I know that things get way better and my motivation to go find the others goes exponentially down as we add more people. Yeah. So even oh. one other couple and their kids is so much better than just the nuclear family in my opinion. Uh-huh. How many uh, families are living on your property right now? So at the moment, so we were in a relationship with another couple that's going really well and they've got two kids who are 11 and just turned seven. And then we've got another neighbor who has a four-year-old girl who recently put a trailer on our property. And, cool. and she's more like sort of the time segmented thing, you know, where she'll come for a couple of days a week. Cool. And that's, I mean, so far so good. That's like it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's really new, but so yeah. far so good. Awesome. I want to talk about your sleeping situation on the Maximal episode, but we have uh, we have some more to get into. Gwen, I'm going to send you a copy of the Minimalist Rulebook because one thing we didn't talk about, but it should be self-evident at this point, is boundaries. Mm. Now, the first boundary is before you even let the roommate into the house, right? Uh, and, until you, the first boundary is not coming to an agreement with someone who has complete opposite values with you. You know you're setting yourself up for discontent for quote unquote failure, for tension, et cetera, uh, property damage, whatever. Like there, there's gonna be all kinds of, of things you don't want to get involved in. But even mm-hmm. then, like Ryan and I have the same values. We don't always agree on things. In fact, he and I have lived together before. We've had different preferences. And sometimes that just dictates, you know, I think what, what really helped Ryan and I live together was kind of what Chris was saying is like, we, we didn't just tolerate each other. We respected each other's desires. Yes. And in that respect, even if I don't completely understand it, I can completely appreciate mm-hmm. you know, the way that you live and vice versa. As long yeah. as you're not harming me or anyone else. Yeah, and we were totally capable of telling each other if something was bugging us or something, our preferences were being stepped on maybe. Yeah. It was very simple to just have a conversation. And I mean, that might just spawn from, I think we have an exceptional, an exceptional relationship in that sense where like we can deliver the truth to each other in a way, even if it sounds negative, like we don't take it negatively. We just kind of take it for what it is. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a, unfortunately a rare thing in relationships, but I think the closer people can get to that in their relationships to not be offended when someone's like, Hey, I'd really appreciate it. If you X, Y, or Z, um, yeah, that would create some better living situations for sure. Yeah. I found five words that are really useful for me as well. Um, would you be willing to, <laughs> would right? you be willing to shut up? <laughs> <laughs> but I- instead of like, Hey man, how come you always leave your, uh, salt crumbs on the counter? Yeah. Hey, would you be willing to clean those up? Yeah. It just, it, this, not a patronizing way, but Hey, you know, would you be willing to? And, and those have, disarm so many arguments mm-hmm. in, in my life, but also shows a just a, a common respect. And I think another way to show respect is to set boundaries up. So we have the Minimalist Rule Book. It's 16 rules for living with less. You can download it for free over at theminimalists.com slash rulebook. 
Also, the audiobook version is available there as well, or you can get the free ebook there. Just download it. TheMinimalists.com slash rulebook. Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It is time for our lightning round where we answer your text messages. You can text your questions and comments to area code 937-202-4654. Yes, indeed. So during the lightning round, Chris, you're familiar with this. This is where we do our best to answer questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes so people can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if they'd like. Oh, and uh, you can find all of our Minimal Maxims in one place now. Minimalmaxims.com. I love like getting random tweets with things that I've said and they quote me. And I'm like, oh yeah, I did say that. Like, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> They're all in the show notes, so you can copy <laughs> I'm like, and like, that's a those. genius quote. Who came up with, oh, that was me? <laughs> Thank God for the website, because I would not remember all of them. <laughs> yeah. We got a question here from Eric. All right. Uh, are there countries, tribes, societies where unusual living arrangements, for example, communal living, throuples, combined families, long-term singlehood, nomadic living, isn't actually unusual? How happy are these people with these arrangements? What are the pros and cons of these arrangements? Okay, Chris. So there's three questions here in the lightning round. This is what we do during the lightning round. It's actually our longest segment. Yeah. Strangely. (laughs) Um, So I do have a pithy answer and I want to unpack it with you. And then I want to hear what you have to say. So here's my my pithy answer. Searching for pros, in quotes, tethers us to the cons. And so Mm. I think that... it's okay to, to learn the negative and positive lessons from yesteryear. Yeah. But I find that whenever I take a piece of paper out and make the line down the middle, here's the pros mm. on this side and here's the cons. It's an intellectual exercise, but it doesn't really help with a deeper understanding of our nature. Mm. And, um, and so I think in these situations, because they're so complex, it's not like, do I want to buy the Honda Accord or the Toyota Camry? Okay, the pro-con list probably going to help out with that. Sure. Even then, you probably know which one you want, and the pro-con list is irrelevant. Yeah. And I think the same thing might be true with our living situations. Mm. You've been told, you've been prescribed, that here's what you must do. At age 22, you're supposed to get married, and you have three and a half kids and a dog and a cat, and you live in this house and a yard and a fence. <laughs> Nothing wrong with any of those things. Yeah. They're not going to make you happy their externalities, uh, happiness and peace are only uncovered, right? And so you asked a moment ago, what is enough? Maybe if I were to pin that, I would say, well, what is appropriate for your life, for your preferences? And it seems to me that like, Chris, the situation you're in, I would not like that at all. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not because I think it's wrong. I think that I spend most of my time alone, so I think that being around more people is going to decrease my tranquility in a mm. way. Mm. Yeah, that's a weird perspective, isn't it? <laughs> Mine? <laughs> I think yes. so. And, and, you know, uh, weird is actually an acronym here. It's ah, uh, yes. Westernized, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Uh-huh. Mm. There's a really good book called The Weirdest People in the World by Joe Henrik, uh-huh. where he writes about this phenomena and includes um, the big five personality traits. Introversion is one of them. Mm-hmm. And it's unique to weird societies. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the US, Canada, UK, Australia, New uh-huh. Zealand, all the, these are all weird places, right? Right. Yeah. And introversion does not exist in hunter gatherers. It just doesn't make any sense. If you think 
fierce egalitarian if your existence depends on sharing right mm. Mm. the best place to store food is in the belly of my brother yes then where does introversion fit into that and it doesn't and when they go examine hunter gatherers and ask them questions that should identify these big five personality traits mm -hmm. they don't mm -hmm. find them hmm. but what about so the most enlightened people in history have all gone off we can take away the terms introvert and extrovert for the sake of this and had large stretches of solitude mm -hmm. now that could be because they're trying to beat the culture out of them right that was that that ruined the hunter-gatherer nature uh, and and so the buddha for example had you know to go off for seven years supposedly eating a grain of rice a day or something absurd right um and and in doing the uh, that stillness the solitude the 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 alone time mm -hmm. um it, it almost was like a, a deprogramming of of the culture in a way mm -hmm. or of society mm. yeah i really like cal newport's definition of solitude i know you know him i've yeah. heard him on the podcast i interviewed him too yeah and you remember him talking about solitude is a state that you can achieve anywhere right you can have solitude in a coffee shop working surrounded by people and noise yeah it's the absence of input from another human mind which ultimately is your choice right mm. so you can still have solitude in my chaotic living room with a bunch of kids bouncing around between the walls, right? If, yeah. if you choose not to get tugged around by every input that comes your way. So it's a, I think it's a choice. I think you can still have solitude in a noisy environment. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I call it ambient people. Like I like to write in coffee shops quite often. Yeah. yeah. But I, where I disagree is like you can, but you can't if people are demanding your attention. Mm -hmm. And so if I am saying, hey, Ryan, 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 right. and he's trying to be in solitude, yeah. he's either going to have to be a total jerk to mm -hmm. me, but I'm really the one being the jerk because I'm constantly, you know, Ryan, Ryan, Ryan. Yeah. But like him not reciprocating it, that is actually going to hurt our relationship. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm talking, when I talk about boundaries even, like figuring out what is appropriate in in my life. And so, yeah, I you know, I, have, I have a unusual living arrangement. You know, uh, my wife and I have you know, separate places and separate states and we spend every other week apart. Mm -hmm. And in, in doing that, it's the most ideal scenario for us given our current you know, constraints. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, however, uh, if, if I was forced into your situation, could I, I could make, could I make it work? Yeah, I could, but I don't know that it would be optimal for me. And I yeah. think that's the difference. Yeah, mm -hmm. I wouldn't deny that. Again, it's like choosing people that share that value system. Like you're probably yeah. a bunch of introverts are probably not going to work together. But there is also an economy of scale there. So imagine you've got a bunch of kids. It's like really hard for you to have alone time. But if the kids are all happy together, I mean, I can look after five kids as easy as I can look after two kids. And so maybe in the end, you end up with more alone time. Like you can go off and oh, take a walk yeah. and do whatever you want to do because mm. I'm there to take care of your kids. And actually it makes my life easier when there are more kids. Yeah, yeah. I so think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, a, yeah. A sort of paradox there, you know, like it seems like you're getting less time alone, but in the end you will end up with more. Yeah, because I, I know right now, like with having just one kid and we don't even have her full time, right? Mm. It, but when we have her, it's two parents parenting, parenting <laughs> one child. Parenting the activity, not the relationship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like we're just, uh, and, and so it's, it's a strange, it's a strange thing because of, if she had more siblings, then it would, I think, it would actually ease. Oh, totally. Yeah. So you know mm. about this. So having multiple kids, well, or as you're finding, as you're going through these living situations, is there anything that is, 
that you found to be your sweet spot that you think is applicable to other people mm. between how many people you're living on the same sort of commune with? Mm. I honestly don't know the answer to that yet. Yeah. We've been doing, what do you been suspect? Doing it, yeah. Is it big? Is it 20 people? Is it 40 people? Yeah, I suspect that once you get to a certain number, you, you then start having problems with communication, you know, that it then becomes like a sort of, you know, you have to have like democratic processes and uh, uh, keeping everybody on the same yeah. page. I can imagine that would start to become inefficient, but yeah. we've not found enough people. I mean, that's part of the reason why I'm here today is to try and find some more like-minded people. Well, they, how, do they, how do they find you? Oh, well, you can find me at my email address, chris at nourishbalancethrive.com. Uh-oh. Be careful what you ask for, Chris. <laughs> I'm moving to Santa Cruz. <laughs> Let's see. So, so back to Eric's questions yeah. here. When we're talking about, you know, and obviously on the Maximal episode, we'll talk more about, we have a whole article about throuples, uh, combined families, long-term singlehood as well, uh, nomadic living. Uh, and so what you're doing isn't nomadic living um, because you're in one place. We're still sedentary. Right. Yes. But it is, it, from our societal standpoint, it's, it's, it's semi-nomadic in a way, meaning you're not tethered to that place. You, no. It, it, you're not dr commuting to the same job every day, et cetera. Even though you have a career, you could do that from pretty much anywhere. Yeah, no, we would be totally happy to move somewhere else for the right opportunity. You yeah. know? And maybe that's the right thing to do. That's the problem we've got right now is California mm. is so ridiculously expensive yeah. mm -hmm. that maybe we just need to find a you know, plot of land in Texas or Colorado or somewhere like that, you know, where it's all Montana actually would probably be a good option where it's so much cheaper. Yeah. 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 Although it's, it's very cold there in the I winter. I know. I know. That's why everyone wants to live in California. It's sunny and nice and yeah, it's Can't great. The weather. Yeah. Yes, indeed. It's like Florida's got summer year round, but the humidity, that's the, that, that, that's the thing that keeps people away from Florida. Yeah. <laughs> summer in Florida, man. Yeah. So, so brutal. Ryan, I'm looking here at Eric's question, the, yeah. how happy are these people in these arrangements? Mm. Again, I think this is, this is highly individual, right? Yes. And that's why I don't think there is a supposed, there, I, not that I think, there is no supposed to. We were not born to live in a nuclear family, but it's not wrong to live in a nuclear family either. Yeah. It may be the most appropriate thing for you, but instead of, here's the problem I have, Chris, is, is we, we often feel as I'm supposed to do this thing right mm -hmm. because society and culture has has convinced me it's it's the quote-unquote right thing to do but now i'm feeling discontented by it and it's not that well i'm saying you shouldn't do the thing that society's telling you to do it's that knowing that you're better you're better off if you know that it's not the thing that you have to do mm -hmm. and therefore if you do decide to intentionally embark on a nuclear family and you have mm -hmm. the American dream or whatever and you, you're contented by that, great, but it's not, um, it's not the prescription. Mm -hmm. yeah. What well, is the prescription of the Catholic Church? It depends. <laughs> who you, I mean, so I think that's important to understand where this came from. That's mm -hmm. what Joe Henrik wrote about in his book is that the monogamous nuclear family is an invention of the Catholic Church in the fourth century and it was the best money-making system ever, right? You couldn't get divorced. You couldn't adopt a child. You could only pass on your money to your son and heir. Yeah. I mean, just biologically speaking, at some point, you're not going to produce a son and heir. Right. And if you don't produce a son and heir... It all goes to the church. It all goes to the church. And at you know, mm -hmm. some point, the, the Catholic Church ended up owning, you know, like a third of Germany. It was like the best business model ever. Oh, wow. And so that's where it originates. That's where the idea originates. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, if you don't really subscribe to the ideas 
put yeah. out by the Catholic Church. And the Protestants weren't much better. They just kind of even you know, took it to extremes. But Joe Henrik writes about that history in his book, so I'd recommend that. Now, you're not saying that no one was monogamous previous to that. You're saying it was not the default setting of the culture at the time. No, I don't think anyone was monogamous before that. And really? I think that hmm. even to this day, like this, the idea that you know, the monogamous nuclear family is um, unique to weird societies, right? There are still places um, around today where they don't do, like cousin marriage is really common. You know, the polygamy is still a thing. Like it's not, it's only, I mean, we don't know because we're inside of this bubble and we can't really see out. Yeah. But I mean, there's definitely going to be people listening to this that are saying, yeah, of course, like this monogamous nuclear family thing. Why would you do that? Stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, interesting. I, it's funny though, because I don't think that it's, this is where I push back. I don't see it as stupid. But maybe this is just my acculturation. Like the, the, I've been, I've been forced to think it's not uh, that it's not stupid. I don't think it's stupid or not stupid. Yeah. I think it's, it's. There's a reason that we've continued to do it for a prolonged period of time. Right. Now, it, it may not work for the average person listening to this, or it might work for you. And so, it it's hard for me to to say that. It's stupid because I I kind of do feel that in a way. Yeah. Like there's something in me where I'm like, yeah. L- let, let me let me substitute the word stupid with species appropriate. Mm. You know, going back to my human zoo, you wouldn't keep the penguins on hot sand and you don't keep the humans in monogamous nuclear families, right? Like yeah. that's, that's what I'm arguing. It's not species appropriate. Mm. I mean, there is an upside to it. The, the upside, I mean, Joe Henrik writes about that, is economic prosperity is you get people who are strangers to cooperate in ways that they wouldn't otherwise. Mm. Because the alternative, like a kin-based arrangement, it's like all nepotism, right? Like all mm. the, you know, like all your business goes to someone who's family. Like that's how, that's the alternative. Right. And, and that's why the monogamous nuclear family has become so prevalent today is because of the economic prosperity, which is the upside, right? Mm. So. Mm. Ryan, you got anything hmm. pithy for us? Yeah, uh, you know, listening to Eric's question, I think, you know, maybe he's looking at different examples because maybe he I don't know I'm just assuming that maybe he feels that the way he wants to live uh, with his family maybe it's a little weird Um, but yeah I mean my pithy answer is a genuine life doesn't require someone else's approval so when I think about your um, your uh, uh, not extroversion but introversion Mm -hmm. like that is strange to me but it's not strange to you that's you living a genuine life yeah. So because of that, you know, Josh isn't looking for external approval from other mm-hmm. people to be like, well, is it okay that, that I'm alone? Mm-hmm. Um, Although I, I did do that for the longest time and it made me miserable. Oh yeah, it absolutely did. Especially during like the corporate days for sure. But mm-hmm. you know, I look at this question, the last one about the pros and cons mm-hmm. and we could sit here and maybe we put together a nice pros and cons list for Eric here. Right. But there, there would be our pros and cons. That's a great point. And, and by the way, what's usual for you could be unusual for me. Yeah, some people's and pros or other people's cons. <laughs> I also wrote down here, unusual is usually ideal. So Chris lives in an unusual situation because he's done so deliberately, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's intentional, exactly. Rather yes. than just choosing the societal right. Right. default. Instead of charging the... Uh, cha- uh, uh, decided on the usual thing, right? Mm. Uh, accepting the usual thing. You've done something quote-unquote unusual right right? and and that's what's appropriate for you bex and i've done something that is unusual Mm -hmm. meaning it's not it doesn't conform exactly to the societal standards Mm -hmm. it's it 
there's a Venn diagram, but there's even a Venn diagram with you and, and yeah. you, know, you have a wife, right? That's, mm. a, that, that's a relic of your past, right? And if you, right? <laughs> she it, might have something to say about that. <laughs> I, no, I mean, it, th that's the thing though, right? Like in, it, we, you were told that you needed to be married at some point, yeah. right? But your hunter gatherers never married, right? Mm. That's, that's another interesting point actually that, that Joe Henrik argues that what came before monogamy was polygamy and I had an interesting conversation with our mutual friend Chris Ryan about that mm -hmm. and uh, you know sort of the, the short answer is that it really depends how you define marriage so for some mm -hmm. hunter-gatherer bands or even you know indigenous people um, they define marriage as like if I hang my hammock next to yours and we spend the night together then we're married and then if I take my hammock somewhere else then we're not married anymore, right? Mm. So it really depends, uh, like the yeah. literature is really hard to, to, to interpret because it really depends on how you define marriage. It's like a really mm. slippery thing to define. Yeah, yeah. no, I totally agree. Yeah, Ryan and I call our, our significant others our, our wives, but we mm. don't have a piece of paper that says that we are. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. And it's because I don't, I don't want to get the government involved in our love. And, and so like it, there's, and Bex feels the same way, thankfully. I know Ryan is on, on the same page, mm. but like, it, it has a lot to do with you know, how do you define marriage? I, I don't define it as government involvement. Mm -hmm. By the way, like even our government, people early on, you know, George Washington didn't have a government certificate for his marriage, but he was married. Um, I find that monogamy works really well in, in Bex's in my relationship. Um, however, we have, actually, I'm going to save this for the maximal because it's going to get kind of private here. So, um, We'll save that for the private podcast. We got a bunch more questions as well. Also, um, I do have a a communal living themed added value this week. All right, but uh, we got some listener comments and tips as well, and a bunch more surprise questions. Like, what are some examples of successful nomads? How about successful throuples and long term single people? Uh, don't most societies treat the hoarding of things from past generations, things like sentimental heirlooms, as a net positive? So we have someone arguing for hoarding. Um, and then what, <laughs> what, what have been the unexpected upsides and downsides of communal living for Chris? We've touched on a few of those, but I really do want to get honest about what, uh, what lessons you've learned there. Plus a million more questions about unusual living situations. And if you want to hear all that, listen to this week's Maximal episode on Patreon. That's right. You're currently listening to our weekly Minimal episode. But each Thursday, Ryan and I and our guest, we record a much longer Maximal episode for The Minimalist Private Podcast. Visit theminimalists.com slash support to subscribe and get your personal link so that our private podcast plays in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoy our show and want to support The Minimalist, this is the only way our podcast earns money. It's cheaper than a cup of coffee and it keeps our show 100% advertisement free. Plus, private, pod po private podcast subscribers also gain access to hundreds of hours of archives. Ryan, what else you got for us this week? Here are some voicemail comments and insights from our listeners. Check them out. Hey, y'all. This is Emily Stewart from Florence, South Carolina, and I wanted to share a tip. So I've been a minimalist my entire life, even as a kid, but I find myself thinking that I don't have anything to get rid of because I'm a minimalist. So I came up with a game with myself that kind of helps me to keep cleaning things out. I often shop at Trader Joe's and Aldi's and I bring my own bags, but sometimes I forget and end up having to grab the paper bags at checkout. So my new rule for myself is every time I do this, I have to fill up the paper bags with things from my home to give away or sell. 
So although forgetting my own bags isn't good for the environment, it turned into a great way to consistently clear out and help keep it fun for me and fresh, even though I am, have been a minimalist for so long. Mary Rose Coughlin, Vernon, Connecticut. Um, so that's happened to me several times where I've lost a great deal of money in a pocket that I gave away or tipping from the wrong pocket when I had money traveling. And I like to think that that person needed the money more than I did. So whether you say God wanted them to have it or the power of the universe knew they needed it, that person needed the money more than you did. And you're blessed to have an opportunity to share it with them. All right, y'all, for our added value this week, you talked about, you saw this, um, Chris, you saw, um, what, what's the name of the Wild Wild Country? Yes. Right? Yeah. So there's another docu-series about Nexium. Have you heard about Nexium? No, I can't wait to watch this. This is great. Yeah, it's I don't know. I'm like fascinated by the cult documentaries that they do, or even the, yes. um, oh man, the one that the reenactment one they did the series with uh, the Waco one. Yeah, with Waco. Oh yeah, so uh, Tyler Kitsch was his name. Yeah. He played uh, David Koresh. That was, was so good. good. All right, so yeah. tell, tell us about Nexium. I, I too am fascinated. Here's why I'm fascinated by this because. I am often fascinated on the trajectory of where you are right now, where you have two, three, four families living on the same land with kids, whatever. And then all of a sudden, where is the tipping point where it becomes a cult? <laughs> <laughs> all, all that Chris is missing is a guru. Exactly. That's the, that's the thing, right? Like if you keep it egalitarian, then it can't be a cult. The moment right. you have a guru, like then you're in trouble. Yes. Yeah. And, and But also... Aren't there? There are like great gurus who have no interest in forming a cult whatsoever. Like they don't want, a, yeah. a, you know, they they just want to be teachers yeah. or whatever. Maybe that's the difference. They they call themselves teachers it's, or masters or whatever. And it's wild how it always starts with usually something positive. Like, so Mariah has been reading a book, and I I don't know what the name of it is, but she was like, you should really check out this book. It talks about this guy named Osho. Oh wow! And so she's like, and she's going on and on, and I'm like, I'm like, that rings a bell. Like, where have I heard that name before? And then she's like, oh my god! She's like, I've been reading this Wild Wild Country guys book, and I had no idea until she like got yeah. three quarters of the way through it. And she was like, oh wow, this is that Wild Wild Country guy. It does seem that Osho was probably an enlightened person, but also had you know, some sort of weird fascination, well, yeah, fa fascination with material. He was a narcissist, wasn't he? Was yeah. my understanding? Yeah, may maybe. Well, I don't yeah. know. I mean, I. I, or maybe he had no ego at all. Like, I yeah. don't know what that looks like. I think he, pr it doesn't even matter. I, I mean, personally, I think he trusted the wrong people. And he did? Yes. I I, th why was he driving all of these? I mean, I, there's nothing wrong with Rolls Royce. I don't think he did anything wrong. No. I, I also think he had a lot of wisdom. And so the book she read, pro I, haven't, I haven't read a oh, whole yeah. lot of his stuff. She's been sharing some of the wisdom. And I'm like, oh, that is a pretty awesome insight. That yes. is pretty great. I mean, he had a ton of insights. Yeah. And I, but I think, you know, uh, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, maybe that's the point he got to. But I know, like, with when I saw Wild Wild Country, I was like, oh, like, Osho got to a point where he kind of, like, put his hands in the air and let everyone else around him run everything. Yeah. And maybe that's where it started to go wrong when he stopped, you know, trying. When he, you know, reached Nirvana, he was like, all right, I'm here and I don't really care what what happens around me, which yeah. I guess would be it could be yeah. And someone else stepped up and was power hungry and, and yeah. And but, so there was power struggle. But even like everything. David Koresh, I mean, like watching that docu series, like it, it started out where he was, you know, helping people. I mean, he was a little insane, 
Um, but I guess we're all a little insane. You know, just the, it's a level of uh, how insane are we? <laughs> well, I don't know, Chris, maybe we could talk about that. You've got, you, you have a, a this, this, these cults and mm. the commonality. In fact, the, the line from, oh, by the way, my added value this week is called The Vowel, V-O-W, The Vowel. Uh, and it is a docu-series on HBO about next, the Nexium cult. And the thing that you, you learn is I think two things sort of converge whenever one of these cults forms. One is you have some sort of brilliant ideas, wisdom, insights, etc. Mm. At least the most compelling ones. That's how they get people to join because there's some sort of brilliant in- insight there, right? right? And then you have kooky beliefs that are sort of mixed in with that, right? Yeah. And so the David Koresh thing is a great example of, you know, kooky beliefs because eventually he's like, well, God has told me that only I I can have sex with the women in our tribe mm, and yes. and the men must be monogamous and or I mean, they must be celibate rather and yeah. it becomes very strange very quickly. Yeah. It's weird how it starts with some type of like good intention and with like a deep truth that gets mm-hmm. uncovered but then it m- gets mixed with all this belief yeah the craziness yeah and, and so well, chris it, nobody joins a cult is the li- one of the lines in this in this uh docuseries <laughs> i love that and that's true right like it's a guy who's in the cult who says right. no and he's he's found out like oh i've gone too far i've got to get out whatever and he says but no one joins a cult right mm-hmm. you don't you never meet anyone who's looking to sign up for a cult right and yet Lots of people join cults yeah. mm-hmm. because they don't realize. In fact, maybe the time they joined it, it wasn't yet a cult. Oh, man. And so um, we talked about how do we avoid that. But also um, I'm just fascinated because parts of this are so good and human and nourishing and there are spiritual components and all of this. And then it's always tainted by mm-hmm. something else mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. an abuse of power yeah i mean the desire to belong is is so strong isn't it it's not surprising that people are drawn into that sort of thing i mean even in wild wild country did you not i mean especially the early episodes did you not look at that and think wow that looks awesome i would yeah. quite like to go there i mean yeah. definitely a part of it looked really really good and well, then it all started to yeah. the wheels came off the wagon eventually right but in the beginning it looks great right yeah. the whole concept was we're going to have a community to like show how a community can thrive mm-hmm. and yeah and they and they did a very good job of that in the beginning yeah i totally agree and so i don't know maybe the key is that you keep it below a certain threshold and <laughs> <laughs> it can't be a cult as long as there's fewer than 10 people like i don't know what what it is but that's certainly something that we want to avoid right yeah. uh, real quick for right here right now here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist we have a new book coming out nourish balance thrives actually mentioned in it briefly oh thank you <laughs> it's called love people use things you can pre-order it, it really helps us out if you do pre-order it uh the print book the ebook or the audiobook over yep. at lovepeopleusethings.net you can also see the beautiful trailer that jordan put together for the book it's called love people use things it'll be out this summer but you can pre-order it now help us out a lot lovepeopleusethings.net you can follow the minimalist on facebook twitter and instagram at the minimalist chris what are you on social media we don't really do social media. They I sort of gave up him. on that after Cal Newport. What a hipster. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, man. Oh, come to one of our live podcast shows. Visit theminimalists.com slash 
tour to find a city near you, you can find Chris over at nourishbalancethrive.com. And apparently you can email him at chris at nourishbalancethrive.com. If you have a question, comment, or minimalism tip for our podcast, email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Comment on this episode, youtube.com slash theminimalist. And if you want our show notes in your inbox, sign up for our email list over at the minimalists.com. You'll also receive our simple Sunday emails. And if you leave here today with just one message, we hope it's this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it